thank you for being here, uh, both uh, those of you here in person and online. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret because we're going to edit this out of the recording afterward, John, okay? You guys are my favorites, all right, because you came this morning. That's going away after this service. So next time you hear me say that, you can just, you can look at your neighbor and go, he actually meant us. I'm his, I'm his favorite. So um, in the interest of doing something that we did at Christmas Eve service, I want to put uh, an image up on the screen. And uh, this one, you know, the one the other night, we eventually showed you what it was. Um, this is a different one. Can we go ahead and throw that? What is that? Okay, maybe you've heard of these. It's called an auto stereogram. And maybe you're familiar with these kinds of puzzles. By the way, does anybody see what it is? Okay, me either. And I've been trying to figure these things out for like 15 years of my life, and I don't think I've ever gotten one. But supposedly, you like stare at it for 30 seconds, you don't blink, it's got to be like a three-quarter moon, you know, it's got to be an odd day of the month or something like that. But once in a while, you run into somebody that's like, it's so easy, I see it. And I'm always like, we're not friends anymore then. I don't, I, don't, I don't see it at all. I've never been able to figure these things out. And my point is, we struggle when things aren't clear, don't we? Don't we struggle when things just aren't clear? And that's especially true for those of us who, if, if you follow Jesus, or if, you, if somebody's even shared with you about Jesus, and you look around your life and it's not clear, it's actually not just not clear, it's very frustrating, isn't it? And we've got this reminder in Matthew chapter 1 uh, of what the prophet Isaiah said. And it's this, and it makes it seem like it should be so clear. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. See, I, I can wrap my arms around that idea when God with us, when God with me is very clear. Can't we? And there are certain places in life that it's very clear, right? We get this at Christmas. God with us. And we just get it. And, and, and we just, it's so clear. We can see it. We get this at Easter, at the cross, when we're reminded of what God really thinks of us when he sent his son to the cross on our behalf. It's clear at that point. But then there are other places where it's just not that clear, is it? And this month, as we've been going through Matthew chapter 2, we're going to wrap that up today. But one of the things that has so captured me about Matthew chapter 2, as I look at it, is not just everything that we've talked about for the last three, four weeks, but the other thing is just the places that are listed in Matthew chapter 2. Because you get places where it's just very clear that God would show up, right? Matthew chapter 2 begins, we've talked about this, you know, these, these magi from a far off land in the east. You know, as you read it, you discover God showed up there. And as you, as you read about God or as you listen to people's testimonies, that's very clear about God, isn't it? I mean, he shows up in far off places. That's just his character. It's what he does. And then you read about Jerusalem, and Jerusalem throughout Scripture is like this epicenter of, of all things God and his activity. And when Jesus is born, he's not to Jerusalem yet, but it's going to culminate in Jerusalem as we know, but not yet. But there are three other places that are listed in Matthew chapter 2 that, that as I look at those locations, those, are, those places could be reminders for you and me of where it's not always clear that he's at. 
And yet what I'm so struck by in Matthew chapter 2 is Jesus is in each of these places. And so I want to do something a little bit different this morning. You know, I know this next week for many of us will be a week in which we maybe reflect individually as we look back over the year. And so I hope that these places, as we talk about them, just for a few moments here, as we talk about each of these places would maybe serve as a framework for you as, as you reflect this next week. As you think about your life, as you think about 2021, as you think about going forward, I'd ask you to think about it with some of the locations of Matthew chapter 2 in mind. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First, Matthew chapter 2. We read uh, about this location. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea. Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem is? Bethlehem are those humble places in life. Bethlehem itself was a very humble place. It sat in the shadow of Jerusalem, about five miles down the road. But Bethlehem would have been a little surprising to anybody that wasn't a prophet, who would have, if they could have just mapped this out and said, that's where God's going to show up when he shows up in the flesh. I don't know that many people would have picked Bethlehem. But the angels in Luke chapter 2, when they show up to some shepherds, here's what they say. Today in the city of David... You know what the city of David is? It's Bethlehem. Bethlehem of all places. Now, to understand the meaning of Bethlehem, you can go back to David's actual story. Because King Saul, when he was ruling, when he was ruling Israel, he, things got to a point where God looked at it and he said, you know what, I'm not real happy with what's going on with King Saul. And so God decides it's time for a new king. And he says to his prophet Samuel, he says, I want you to go find him. And so Samuel is led to Bethlehem, to the house of a man named Jesse. Now Jesse's got, he's got a number of sons, and Samuel shows up, and he sees these different sons, and, and they pass in front of him, and he's thinking, surely that's the next king. And what, why is Samuel thinking that? Because these guys had kingly appearances. You know, tall, dark, handsome, kind of like what he imagined with, with what they had in Saul. Saul looked the part of a king. Well, seven of Jesse's sons go by, and every single time, you know what Samuel hears from the Lord? Nope. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. So they go through all the sons that are in the house, and Samuel's looking around, and he's maybe not getting it right away, and he goes, Jesse, is there anybody else? And Jesse says, well, there's, there's one. There's one, and you know where he is? He's not in a special green room. He's not in a place of honor. He's not sitting on a throne. You know where he is? He's out in a field. He's out in a field tending to a flock of sheep. And it wasn't real glamorous. And honestly, it didn't probably feel very royal. And it wasn't very kingly. And yet they bring in David from the field. And as soon as they bring him in, Samuel hears the Lord. There he is. Anoint him because he's the one. See, that's what happened at Bethlehem. Now, you hear all that, and you start to go, oh, okay, maybe Bethlehem makes a little bit more sense now. You know, it's not the place any of us would have maybe picked or we would have mapped out. In Bethlehem, when Jesus showed up, maybe not the place we would have picked, right? I mean, there were only a few there at the manger, and in many regards, animals that night understood more about God's entrance into the world than the priests of Jerusalem did. But this just isn't how we would plan it, is it? 
especially in our Hollywood-saturated culture. We wouldn't imagine this this way. See, we make a lot out of the, the meaning and the mission and the message of Christmas, but we rarely think about the manner in which God entered the world. Philip Yancey, this author, says it this way. He says, can we imagine what it would have been like for God on Christmas Day? He says, imagine having to let go of all bodily function, of all muscle coordination, of just learning how to function, literally function your body, move your body again. That's what he did. Or maybe if we need a a different picture, imagine yourself just becoming a sea slug again. That's what God did on Christmas Day. In Bethlehem, current day Bethlehem, there's actually a church called the Church of the Nativity. And to enter that church, you actually have to go through, it's called the doorway of humility. The doorway of humility. And the doorway of humility actually is only about three feet high. You've got to actually bow down to even go in. And why? Because it's a reminder of what God did to enter the earth. He bowed low. He came in humility. And so why do I bring all this up? Because Bethlehem, as as quickly as we rush past it, we've got some Bethlehems in our lives, don't we? See, Bethlehem is the place where maybe you're encountering humility right now. And it may not feel good. And it may be the place that you've been knocked down a couple notches. Or it may be the place where you're having to walk next to somebody who's going through that. But we can learn from the Bethlehems in our life. And you know what you, can find, what you find out there? Is that Jesus isn't absent from that place. In fact, Bethlehem is the birthplace of what God is up to in our lives. And so don't look past Bethlehem. Don't look past it. Because it's right there. In fact, there is a, I found this, there's a plaque in, in Hodgenville, Kentucky, near there. Near the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. And it's just, it's just a, um, they've etched in there some bits of a conversation in there. And here's what the plaque reads. It says, any news down at the village, Esri? And the response is, well, Squire McLean's gone to Washington to see Madison swore in. An old spellman tells me this Napoleon Bonaparte fella has captured most of Spain. What's new out here, neighbor? Nothing. Nothing at all. Except for a new baby born at Tom Lincoln's house. Nothing ever happens out here. Huh. That's at the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. And just, I just read, I just read this infancy narrative of Jesus. I read a conversation like that on that plaque. And I think how quickly, how quickly I can overlook the Bethlehems around my life. And yet they're the birthplace of what God is up to in our lives. Well, as Matthew chapter 2 goes on, we're, we're given another location. It seems kind of obscure. You know, you might kind of wonder about it when you first come across it. It almost seems backwards from what God has been doing throughout Scripture. But listen to this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Joseph has been warned to take his family and get out of Bethlehem, get out of the region, because Herod is coming after people. And here's what it says, verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. Wait, left for Egypt? 
Like, it, it seems like a good chunk of scripture. You're, you're seeing, especially in the Old Testament, you're seeing God move them out of Egypt. They left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, to, to understand this a little bit more, and to maybe start to spot some of those Egypt-like places in our lives, it helps to think through what Egypt had been for God's people. You remember, it, it was a place that was, a, it was really a high for them at one point, wasn't it? You remember Joseph, Old Testament Joseph? You know, he, he had been thrown in a pit, but by the end of his story, he's sitting in a palace. And great favor was given to God's people there in Egypt. Well, centuries go by. And Egypt has gone from a high for God's people down to a low. And and they're enduring harsh, harsh slave labor. And so it's gone from high to low. And then we, as we read in Exodus, for years and years and years, you know what Egypt becomes? The wilderness. The wilderness. You want to know what Egypt is? As you look around your life. It's that place that maybe you go, gosh, it's, it's just the wilderness. I mean, it's not clear. God, I don't see where you're at. I can't possibly understand what you're doing. But don't miss this. As you look throughout Jesus' life, constantly he's returning to the wilderness, isn't he? You know, he, he, he gets the news of John the Baptist dying. And where does he go? He goes to the wilderness to pray. And, and then he performs miracles. And frequently after he performs miracles... These moments of celebration, where is Jesus to be found? In the wilderness. When the crowds follow him, where is he? He's in the wilderness. Before he chose his disciples, do you know where he'd been all night? He'd been up praying in the wilderness. See, the the wilderness is the place where we learn to see differently. We learn to look differently. The wilderness is that place where we, we discover how to look for the will of God. That sure, we've talked about this before. We love, we love, we love when his will is revealed to us on the mountaintop. But as we said the other night, I don't know anybody that lives much life on the mountaintops. And we're grateful when we get those moments. But in the wilderness, we learn to look for the Lord. The very one that he tapped to lead his people out of the wilderness. You know what he had to do first? God had to lead Moses into the wilderness. He had to so adjust to the way Moses looked around at his surroundings that he would notice God in a shrub right in front of him. See, we've got to acclimate the way we see. And so as you look around your life, what's a wilderness right now? What just looks like the wilderness and and you can't see, it's not clear And if that describes most of your life right now, let me just encourage you with this. When you look at what what God's people encountered in the wilderness, you know what they're reminded of? This is the place that they're delivered from their oppression and they're prepared for worship. And even if it's not clear the purpose of the wilderness, you can at least take hope in that. This is the place with all the wondering, with all the wandering, that you're delivered from oppression And you're prepared for worship. And if God needs to take years and years and years to do it, he will. But he is faithful to that. The wilderness is where we learn how to look 
for his will. You know, I, I, maybe the best way to describe what the wilderness does, how many, of you, how many of you still go to like carnivals when they're around? No? Okay. Or the amusement park. Do you remember the, the hammer game? The hammer game where you, you like take the mallet and you try to get the weight up the scale to, to ring the bell? Okay. A few people get this. All right. Well, maybe we'll just have this here one Sunday and everybody can try. And I've noticed every single time I play that game, something rises up in me. And it's the same thing that rises up when I play golf, okay? And there's a reason I don't play golf. Because for those of you that are non-golfers, show of hands, non-golfers, all right, these are my people. Okay, Um, I mean, putt-putt on the Wii is about as far as I go, okay? But what happens in golf and what happens in the mallet game at the amusement park, you know what you try to do? Your approach is to muscle it, right? And those of you who play golf you know that anybody who, who shows up to try to muscle a golf ball, where's the ball going? It's, it's, it's not going, usually in my case. But yeah, it's just not going where you want it to go. Same thing with the mallet game. The mallet game is much less about muscle and more about the leverage that you create with that mallet. I'll teach you that sometime, all right? I finally figured out how to hit the bell. You slip 20 to the guy who's running the game and you get to hit the bell. No, there's like a method. And I actually looked it up on the internet because I was bound and determined to to win a prize, to win a $30 stuffed animal because that's how much it costs by the time you, you pay over and over and over to do this. But see, this is our approach, and this is what the wilderness just kind of shaves off of us. You know, we approach everything with force, and we approach everything with our will, and the wilderness says, no, no, no. You, you can't muscle your way through everything. You can't just apply force and expect to arrive at God's will. So what is Bethlehem? Or what, where's the wilderness in life right now? Because you got to know Jesus is in those places. But there's one more place I want to talk about. And, and I want to spend a little time on this because this is actually where physically, if you were to just draw a timeline of Jesus' life, his physical life here on earth, this is the place he spent the most time. And we read about it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. But when he heard, this is Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. A Nazarene. Now, this would have been alarming for people who lived in that day. Because to be called a Nazarene was not just a description of what region you were from. This was derogatory. And this was a demeaning term. This is like saying somebody is from the other side of the tracks. You know, that they just like, they came from a place where everybody who comes from there is just exactly the same kind of person. In fact, to give you a picture of what people thought of it, let's go to John chapter 1. Here's what we read about Nazareth. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And then the response, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from there? Have you said that about some places in life? I mean, have you looked around at some areas and gone, can anything good come from that? 
See, Nazareth can maybe take a few different forms in our lives, can't it? I mean, for some of us, Nazareth is like this ordinary, unimportant, overlooked place. You know, it's the kind of place that when you, you know, maybe you, you drive by. Some of my favorite restaurants are places that I just drove by dozens and dozens of times. And why do we drive by those places? Because we think, eh. Because of its setting, because of where it's at, it's probably not that good. And yet when I try it, I discover how great it is. You know, maybe, maybe Nazareth in your life is the place of stereotyping. I mean, Nazareth was severely stereotyped by people. That they'd look at it and they'd just think, no. No, nothing good can come from there. I already know the kind, of, the kind of person that comes out of that place. This was Nathaniel's problem. Nathaniel thought like everybody else did. And nothing good could come from this place. And for Jesus, Nazareth would actually, when he began his ministry, become the place. Imagine this. You spend decades of your life in one place. You grow up. And when you grow up and you come back to minister... You know what the people did? They rejected him. They rejected him. Maybe that's Nazareth for you. You look around and you just think, "Ah." there are certain places where you just feel rejected. You don't feel accepted. Now, what is our natural, natural tendency with those places? We avoid them, right? We avoid them. Here's what I find so interesting. When you read in Luke chapter 2, that, that Jesus' family, really, they went back to Nazareth. It, it suddenly, it just, we have nothing but obscurity. There's so much we don't know about the time that Jesus was, basically from when he was born. We, see, we get one account from when he's a young boy. And then it's just like there's nothing until he begins his ministry. And we can only presume that he was mostly in one place, Nazareth. Isn't that kind of interesting? Those ordinary maybe stereotyped, maybe places of rejection that we would avoid are where Jesus actually spent so much of his time. And then something happens as a result of it. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, this is right after he's born, they returned to Galilee in their own town of Nazareth. And then look what happened. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. I, uh, I skipped past this, the, whoever's running the slides up there, but I want to show you something. I want to show you this painting. Okay, is anybody a fan of Monet? You've heard of Monet? Okay, there is this painting, and you've probably seen a series of these kinds of paintings right here, water lilies. Okay, now here's the thing about this painting. I feel like I could do that, okay? First of all, I feel like I could do that with finger paints, but I just like to think that. It's like when you used to watch Bob Ross, you know? It's like, I can do that, and then you get done, and it's just, you quit your career and your dreams to be an artist. At least that was the case with me. But you look at this, and you think, okay, there's nothing real special about the actual location of what he was painting. It's just water, some lilies, some color, a pond, There are over 250 of these paintings in a series of paintings Monet created just called Water Lilies. Now, the thing about this painting is not so much the location of it. You know, it's it's not this mountaintop that you'd know the name of. This could be many, many different ponds out there. 
The thing about this painting is what Monet saw. Because Monet got texture, and he got color, and he got detail. And, and this painting of a location that's so ordinary, you want to know what one of these paintings sold for in 2019 in, in London at an auction? $110 million. $110 million. So you think about Nazareth for a minute, and you read a sentence like, and he grew in wisdom and in stature. Handful of verses later, in Luke chapter 2, it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. So you may have a Nazareth that you're used to trying to avoid, but you know what? Some incredibly, incredibly incredibly valuable, infinitely valuable things happen there. You know what happens in in the Nazareth of our lives? Jesus grows. Jesus grows inside of us. His wisdom, his stature, that is who he is to us, he grows in those places. And so let us not overlook the Nazareths in our lives because there might be something incredibly incredibly valuable that comes out of that. Now, you think about Bethlehem, you think about Egypt, you think about Nazareth, and of course their locations, their actual places that you could go visit today. But we've got these places in our lives. They're the humble places. They're the wilderness places. They're the places that maybe we'd rather avoid. And I'm telling you, one of those things that I think just sits right there in the middle of Matthew chapter 2 is that there is no place, whether it be way far in the east where God drew the Magi from, or in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem, or in Egypt, or in Nazareth. You know what you learn at Matthew chapter 2? Jesus, this king, can make any place his palace. Jesus can take any place in your life, any physical location on this earth. And you know what he wants to do? He can make any and every place his palace. And so this next week, you know, if you've got some downtime and you get to reflect and you can think, I want you to think through these. You know, what, what is that humble place, that place of humility right now where God might just be knocking me down a few notches or maybe he's having me walk next to somebody who's encountering and experiencing more humble circumstances? What is the place of wandering? Or what are those places of wandering? And what are those places that I'm prone to avoid? And I can promise you this. If you'll step toward and step into those places, you know what you'll encounter? Your king, your savior, he's already been there. And he already is there. And he may just be waiting for you there because he wants to grow. He wants to grow inside our hearts. I love the way that a man named Marshall Shelley put it. He said this, Spiritual muscle isn't even learned among friends that we have chosen. God's kind of love is best learned where we can't be selective about our associates or our circumstances. Perhaps this is why the two institutions established by God, the family and the church, are not joined by invitation only. 
We have no choice about who our parents or brothers or sisters will be, yet we're expected to love them. Neither can we choose who will or will not be in the family of God. Any who confess Jesus as Lord must be welcomed. We learn agape love most effectively in our involuntary associations, away from the temptation of choosing to love only the attractive. And what Marshall Shelley says there about people, I believe is so applied to the places in our lives as well. In fact, it reminds me of this, and I'll close with this as the worship team comes back up. Uh, And I've shared this before, but there's a story about a group of friends that at age 30, they, they had a reunion. And so they, they were talking about, where should we eat? And finally, somebody said, well, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember restaurant? And they all agreed that would be good. And, and their reasoning was because the waiters and the waitresses were young and, and they were attractive and fun to be around and great service. And so 15 years go by in this group of friends. They get together again for a reunion. They're 45 years old and they're trying to decide where to eat. And and they say, well, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember Tavern? And this time, it's because the food is so good and the wine is so great. Well, 15 years go by. Now they're 60 years old. They get together for a reunion and they're trying to decide where to eat. Somebody says, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember? And this time, as they're talking about it, they go, yeah, that sounds good. Because it's peaceful and it's quiet. And they serve dinner starting at 3.30 p.m., 15, don't worry, I'm gravitating there already, okay? 15 years go by. They're 75 years old. Same question comes up. Where should we eat for our reunion? Well, how about the glowing ember? Because it's physically accessible, easy to get around. Finally, 15 years later, they're 90 years old. They get back together again. Where should we eat the glowing ember? Because we have never been there before. may we never forget to revisit the places that he's making palaces in our lives. The far off, the Jerusalems, the Bethlehems, the Egypts, the Nazareths. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as 2021 draws to a close, I pray that you would so illuminate our eyes our minds, our hearts, our memories, this next week, that as we look across our lives, you know, it'd be so easy to just look for you on the mountaintops, and you're certainly there, and we praise you and thank you for that. But Lord, open our eyes to just how abundantly present you are, that when you said God with us, that was not just on Sundays at church, and that was not just some of the time, that is every single place we go. And so open our eyes anew and soften our hearts afresh to receive your presence in all the different locations of our lives and all the places. And Lord, open our eyes to the fact that you truly are redeeming and restoring and making every place of our lives your palace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.